This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Uh, Spurgeon, though, is going to argue that good works of benevolence and charity are actually necessary and essential as the fruit of a converted heart, a changed heart. And he will actually argue that uh, good work should be part of the work of the church, that they're not just preferable. You know, your church, my church being engaged in uh, benevolent work, he said that's, that's, that's something we must be doing as churches. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you today? I'm well, and I'm looking forward to talking about to our guest about our subject, often known as the Prince of Preachers. And yet today we're not going to talk about his preaching, but other of his uh, endeavors and contributions uh, that are worthy of consideration. So I'm a favorite preacher of mine, but not his preaching that we're talking about today. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, one of the things about Spurgeon is it's not it's not just his preaching. He's just a larger than life figure in so many ways. And the Lord used him powerfully. And this book deals with one particular aspect of Spurgeon's life. The title of the book is Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. And the author is Alex DePrima. Alex is joining us today. He's senior pastor of Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so, Alex, thanks for joining us today to talk about this. Brothers, it's a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, Alex, I want to begin by asking you how it was that you zeroed in on this particular aspect of Spurgeon's life and ministry. Uh, Again, as we said in the introduction, normally Spurgeon's preaching is the focus of our, our study, and many people have done excellent work on that. But you you uh, you zeroed in on, on another important aspect of Spurgeon's work that's often neglected, his, his social concern, his concern for the poor. So I wonder if you could just give us a little synopsis of, of how you got there, how you sort of discovered this important feature of Spurgeon's ministry. Sure. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a particular Baptist, Reformed Baptist, 1689-type setting. Charles Spurgeon was very prominent in my background. Um, quoted by the preachers I grew up under, read some of his books even as like a teenager, and always knew him as this incredible preacher, this sort of larger than life. He's the prince of preachers, right? And um, uh, at some point began to acquire volumes of his sermons and would read his sermons and um, new aspects of his biography. It wasn't until probably college or beginning of seminary I became aware of this massive dimension to his ministry that I had never heard much about, though I had heard plenty about Spurgeon. Uh, and that is how how vigorously he was engaged in uh, social activism, benevolence, philanthropy, good works, that kind of thing, both individually and then through the ministry of his local church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which at the time was the largest church in, in the Protestant world, in the largest city in the world, in, in London in those days. Uh, so, uh, I became aware by the 1880s, there were 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, that was the product of a real vision for a ministry of word and deed that Spurgeon promoted. And those ministries included an orphanage that housed at any given time several hundred orphans, um, subsidized housing for poor widows, ministries to prostitutes and police officers, and all kinds of ragged schools and Sunday schools for kids, and ministries to the blind, and 
I mean, just all kinds of things. Uh, so that the, the, the fact this was such a large part of his ministry and that I had been so aware of Spurgeon for so long, but knew nothing about it, that immediately piqued my interest. And then also, I think, brothers, seeing um, uh, evangelicals in many ways floundering in our day and how to think about the relationship between the gospel and good works, the gospel and social ministry. I mean, that's been a debate going on for a long time, but I'd say especially in the last 100 years, 50 years, certainly the last five years, um, I thought, well, here's maybe a model worth retrieving who is so well known and appreciated for uh, robust gospel preaching, a defender of evangelical orthodoxy, and yet had a large heart for the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the oppressed, and to see if there's something that we could retrieve for today in his example. So how does Spurgeon relate his gospel proclamation, his preaching ministry, and and his social ministry? I mean, and, and, and maybe, maybe it would help since you mentioned some of the concerns and, and the debates of the last century. How does it differ from the social gospel that was mm. rising in popularity during his day and then and then exploded even more? Yeah, so so the the, the gotta remember Spurgeon is pre Walter Rauschenbusch, pre social gospel. His dates are eighteen thirty four to eighteen ninety two. Even the term social gospel isn't really being used in Spurgeon's day. It wouldn't be till the 1890s, really, end of his life, you start seeing that term in use, and then a lot in the, the 20th century, obviously. Uh, Spurgeon, though, is going to argue that good works of benevolence and charity are actually necessary and essential as the fruit of a converted heart, a changed heart. And he will actually argue that... Uh, good work should be part of the work of the church, that they're not just preferable. You know, your church, my church being engaged in uh, benevolent work, he said, that's 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 something we must be doing as churches, not something that's just preferable or optional or something like that. He's going to get at that by lots of different texts and and, and lots of different doctrines, but he's, he's going to argue that uh, A, benevolence and charity and, and, and social work like that is commanded and enjoined on all Christians. Uh, he's going to argue that it is the product of the grace of God at work in the heart to make us ourselves gracious and compassionate in our orientation with other people. He's going to see it in the model of Jesus himself and being oriented toward helping those that are in need. Uh, he's going to see it in passages like uh, Matthew 5 that says the Christian community, the community of disciples, is to be like a city set on a hill, a light to the world. In that passage, the light is not in the first instance the preaching of the gospel, but that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Paul speaks in Titus 2, uh, 14, about how Christ came to redeem a people zealous for good works. And he defines good works in chapter 3 as works of necessity and charity that are helpful for people in urgent cases of need. So he's going to see this as crucial and essential work the church should be after. Uh, certainly going to see it in lots of figures throughout history as well. Um, Christians being known for evangelical social concern. But it's going to be different in a major way from the social gospel of the following century. And the social gospel, as I understand it, is is going to assert that sort of bringing heaven on earth, bringing the kingdom now, renewing the whole creation, that this is in many ways the central mission of the church. And therefore, uh, relieving poverty, relieving suffering and human deprivation becomes sort of foregrounded as the main thing. Uh, Spurgeon is not going to see it that way. Our salvation is chiefly a spiritual salvation. We are being given eternal life. We will inherit the world to come, but 
But in the here and now, part of our Christian witness and part of our Christian faithfulness involves doing good to the poor and doing good to the needy uh, as a result of the work of grace in our hearts, but not as kind of the bullseye of the church's mission and sort of renovating the whole creation uh, and that kind of a thing. Alex, I was going to ask along those lines if if maybe uh, maybe take Walter uh, Rauschenbusch in the se- in the generation after Spurgeon that kind of early twentieth central liberal vision uh, yeah. of of good works and charity. Is there a different eschatology, uh, if that's the right way to say it, in terms of the end game, so to speak, of what Spurgeon is aiming at and what someone like uh, Rauschenbusch is aiming at in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Uh, what, yeah, what is sure. there? What do they think is going to be the outcome or the result of this? Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point, and it's a great question, James. I think it's very relevant to even some discussions now we're seeing about eschatology and its relation to the kingdom and what is our role in bringing the kingdom and that kind of thing. Oddly enough, occurring both on the left and on the right, you know, um, with views of postmillennialism and things like that. Uh, Spurgeon, you know, be great. Maybe one of your listeners will write a dissertation on Spurgeon's eschatology. We don't have one on Spurgeon's eschatology. Um, and that would be a very fertile topic for discussion. Some have begun to suggest that Spurgeon was maybe a postmillennialist. There really isn't any evidence for that. He was probably a, a sort of classic premillennialist. Um, this is before the fundamentalist movement. He was friends with D.L. Moody, but it's, it's really before that movement takes off. Um, Spurgeon is not going to attach his view of social engagement to any eschatological view, chiefly. Though I think Rauschenbusch and those who followed in his wake would. Uh, so if you believe in a, maybe a post-millennial vision uh, of, of the end times, you might believe that the church has more of a part to play in renovating the culture, renovating the world. Um, Spurgeon, though, if I could kind of capture his his expectation for the future, I think Spurgeon is going to be very bullish about the Great Commission, about the church. I think he sees uh, uh, the cause of the Great Commission becoming ever brighter and greater. And by that, I mean the evangelization of the world and of the heathen and of the nations. Uh, and that the church is going to grow and to persevere and to become ever brighter, all the while against the backdrop of a dark world that is uh, perhaps going to get darker and darker as time goes on. So I think um, even in that sort of um, um, tension, that kind of dichotomy, you could see any effort or energy he's going to give towards social engagement, which is quite a lot, is not going to be tied to, well, ultimately, we're going to make the world a better place. He's expecting a new heavens and a new earth to come in a very radical way, that Christ in a climactic way at the consummation is going to renovate the whole creation. And um, at that point, then we can expect the total alleviation of pain, suffering, death, sorrow, poverty, you know, all that. But but nonetheless, our good works and our care for the needy has a part to play in Christian witness today and faithfulness to Christ and showing forth the power of the grace of God. Um, so he's definitely going to argue for it, but from different different means, not not through eschatology. I think you draw this out a little bit uh, in a uh, scene that you uh, recount early in your book of Spurgeon in the infirmary at the Stockwell orphanage, Mm. holding the hand of a terminally ill child who quite literally is lying on his own deathbed. Uh, And Spurgeon who has been so instrumental in, in funding this orphanage and, or, or finding the funds for this orphanage and supporting it, um, not just from a distance, but really, but with regular visitations and especially to the sick 
orphan children there, um, that he's holding the hand of this child and preparing him to meet Jesus face to face. And you don't need maybe a, a reconstructionist post-millennial eschatology to justify that. I, no, I, anyway, that came out to me. I just kind of came out to me starkly that a kind of, you know, whatever historic, historic pre mill, uh, you take it, a take take it as a, a pessimistic, uh, eschatology as some might accuse it. And yet for all of that, he's, he's offering real relief now, but he's using it as the occasion, right. To, yes, to prepare hearts he, for the future. He, he, he's going to say, James, you know, what, what would be more Christian than, than that very thing for a, redeemed, regenerated man now confronted with this child in, in serious need on his deathbed, wouldn't all the, the, the instincts and influences of the grace of God and the mercy of God in Christ lead us to want to hold that child's hand and to be alongside them, to pray over them, to provide relief for them? He's going to say this, this is what Christians ought to be known for. Uh, one of the, the quotes in the book that I, I mentioned, um, I don't have it before me, but um, he, he says at some point, um, to me, a, a Christian uh, means a friend of man. He says, a Christian is generous by force of grace uh, and a philanthropist by profession. Wide is the reign of sorrow is the stretch of the Christian's love. And even where he cannot help, he pities still. His point is, the grace of God makes us into these kinds of people who are lovers of our fellow men, gracious toward our fellow men, wanting to do good to others, wanting to love our neighbors. There's something distinctly Christian about that, distinctly Christ-like about that. And I do think, brothers, as we look over kind of our, our heritage in the Reformed world, the Protestant world, the evangelical world, this has been what the church has been known for for centuries. Uh, we have been the people who help, the people who provide aid, the people who care about others. Even going back to the earliest centuries of the church, it was Christians who invented the hospital. Uh, that was our idea. It was Christians who were rescuing orphans, you know, off of the infanticide walls. Uh, there's a, a very godly instinct there. It's Christians who have been known for rescuing orphans and widows, even down to today. It's Christians flooding the adoption agencies. Spurgeon is going to say, yes, that's Christ-like. That's what we should be known for. We are the people who help. We are the people who care. And, and to your point, James, he's not attaching that to some larger reconstructionist vision or, yeah, sort of view of cultural renewal. I mean, that's a, a debate that can be had in other spheres. That's not what's motivating Spurgeon. What's motivating Spurgeon is the second great commandment. What's motivating him is the example of the Lord Jesus. What's motivating him is many of the imperatives that we see in the New Testament to care for needy people, to do good to all, um, to help the poor, uh, to be a people zealous for good works. That's what's driving him. And that's what I think comes through in the book. Talk, talk Alex, to you, us a little. Well, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, no. Well, uh, we may have been heading in the same direction. You mentioned earlier some of the things kind of in the introduction, some of the things that he was uh, instrumental in, uh, in in starting up. Um, so some of his notable charitable works, you, you listed off a few. But I wondered if you could expand on that and just give give us a sense of the scope of his charitable work that was kind of the outworking of his theory and teaching, because you, you spend sort of the first half of your book talking about the theory behind some of the ways he addressed these social ills and then, and then how he actually did it. Um, so, so that's that second part, how he went about addressing it. But I wonder if you could expand on yeah. for us just to give us a sense of it. No, good question. So Spurgeon is, remember he's in South London, a, a city, this is Dickens, London. You think of many of the scenes of Dickens' books, the the factories, the smog, 
the children being forced to work uh, long hours in these you know factories with poor lighting and poor ventilation and all of that. Just massive industrial expansion. Like I said, the largest city in the world. And he's in the heart of that in South London, a very uh, tough neighborhood to be in. Even today, it's that way. If you go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle today, uh, he is basically, uh, he's very responsive to uh, where the church is, the needs around their immediate neighborhood, very responsive to many of the initiatives of his own members and his deacons and others who come to him with ideas. But um, he's basically looking at London and thinking, where can we make a difference? Where can we put a dent in this? Where can we do good with the resources that we have? And that leads him especially to give himself to lots of ministries to children. I guess he identified children as as among the neediest group in London at that time. Um, so he has his orphanage, but then tons of what would be called ragged schools where you're providing basic education and reading, writing, and arithmetic during the week to children uh, before they go into work in the factory or after they come home from work. And then lots of Sunday schools as well in different neighborhoods all over London. Uh, you also would have street missions as well. Those would be kind of preaching centers and maybe you'd have, you know, food kitchens kind of associated with them where you're going to particular neighborhoods trying to evangelize those neighborhoods. Um, lots of other ministries besides. I would I would want to emphasize, though, and I, I think I do in the book, that Spurgeon, you know, the best case scenario, he's not just trying to meet uh, different needs that people have or to alleviate suffering where suffering is found, although he's trying to do those things. He always is seeking to attach the benevolent ministries of the church to direct sort of gospel appeals or gospel proclamation or evangelistic work. Uh, and then also trying to put needy people and lost people in relationship with Christians. So very, very personal kind of ministries that are going to actually bring people kind of in friction or in contact with believers. And in that, he wanted the, the, the people he ministered to to see we're doing this distinctly because of our our doctrine, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about Christ, and what we believe about the church, and what we believe about heaven and hell. And he wanted to have the opportunity through his benevolent work to sort of draw men and women to Christ, which I think is a very important point. He would He would not be as motivated about just sort of sending money anonymously to build wells in Africa. He wanted personal contact with Christians who can articulate the gospel even as they're they're doing good to others. Of course, they'll acknowledge it's a good thing to help someone, even if you can't give them an evangelistic tract or, you know, but at the same time, if we can connect our benevolent ministry with actual evangelistic work, that's a that's a best case scenario. And that's what he tried to do in his in his benevolent ministries. Alex, thanks for that. Um, this is I think this is really instructive uh, for us now, because I think and I want to kind of finish with this consideration for reformed and evangelical Christians. Sometimes we we feel the pressure on two sides uh, from the side of Roman Catholicism, where you have faith perfected through charity. We're concerned about works righteousness uh, and the motivations underlying charitable deeds. Uh, and maybe maybe that's like a, a problem to the right. And then a problem to the left would be something like the Reconstructionist eschatology, uh, where cultural renewal is the kingdom of Christ. Um, and I think we can sometimes be sort of paralyzed in between those two pitfalls uh, on either side in terms of our own action. So maybe as a summary, how does Spurgeon help us to walk this path of love and good deeds that actually looks like not just theory, but practice, as you point out in the book, uh, and yet to do so with a concern for the gospel that doesn't fall into works righteousness or to a kind of progressivist reconstruction eschatology on the other side? 
Yeah, I'll just mention, uh, James. So one of the things I do, I have an appendix in the book that sort of asks the question, why don't we see more Spurgeonic type ministry of, of word and deed in this sort of um, sort of really compelling way that he executed it in London? And it's just a proposal, but I, I suggest that a lot of the water under the bridge over the last hundred years in America, especially, complicates these discussions for us because we're post Rauschenbusch, we're post social gospel. Uh, we tend to see social involvement, social ministry, mercy ministry as an instinct of theological liberalism because we we know where that goes. You have a young person in your church zealous for social ministry, and you're wondering, okay, is this tethered to the gospel? Is this tethered to sound theology? Where is this going to go? Because uh, we've seen people go to the far left with that and embrace a social gospel. And this might be what some people today would call kind of woke evangelicalism or something like that. Um, so we're, we're playing defense against that. And like you said, the, the Roman Catholic idea of faith perfected through good works is also a concern we want to navigate as well. I think what I appreciate about Spurgeon and one of the reasons I wrote the book to kind of you know hold up for churches today is um, one who is rooting mercy ministry and social involvement in uh, the gospel itself, in uh, imperatives in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, and is going to do that in a way that's reliable, that doesn't sort of either uh, subvert the gospel and make social ministry and mercy ministry the main thing, but I'll also say it doesn't even make mercy ministry and social involvement equal to gospel proclamation, but sees gospel proclamation and the building up of healthy churches is the main mission of the church with social ministry flowing kind of downstream of there, you know, and seeing this as a necessary sort of outcome of what we believe about God and his grace and about love for our neighbor and things like that. So I think he situates mercy ministry and social ministry in a much more reliable and biblically faithful place that will allow us as uh, speaking for myself and my camp reformed evangelicals to pursue mercy ministry vigorously uh, without fearing that we are buying into works righteousness on the one hand or buying into a social gospel on the other, but seeing this as just our, our Christian birthright. This is what Christians have been doing for 2000 years. It's what they were doing in the early centuries. It's what they were doing. I, I quote lots of the Protestant confessions that, you know, so many of them include alms for the poor, care for the poor, you know, uh, as, as part of the statements, you know, in the confessions themselves, also covenants and, uh, America, people pledging to minister to the poor, do good to the needy. That's been our history. That's been our heritage. And I would be very sad to see a lot of the challenges and and um, uh, difficulties and, and debates of the last hundred years uh, cause people to be cautious about being engaged in what is a very good work, uh, mercy ministry on behalf of the needy. Well, Alex, we really appreciate your time with us today. This is a fascinating study and one that I think will interest a lot of our listeners who have a natural affinity for, for Spurgeon. And so thank you for uh, your labor in, in writing this. And also thanks for giving us some of your time today. Well, both were a joy. It's really great to be on with you, brothers. James, one of the things that I especially appreciated about Alex's presentation in this book and, and in, in during our time today was the way in which he connected it to the witness of the church throughout history that this isn't, I mean, it, it's, we, we pick up the book because we're interested in Spurgeon and what he did. And, and, and he, again, always a fascinating figure, but, but the reality is most of what he's doing, he's doing in explicit continuity with what Christians have always done. This isn't a new thing. 
It's not a 19th century thing. It's not even a Spurgeon thing. It's a Christian thing. Yeah. And I think he, and I think that came out in our interview and our discussion with Alex. Uh, one thing I, I appreciate about this book is just, we were saying this to him off the air, that it does fill a void in the literature, not just in the literature of Spurgeonia, in which there are so many secondary bits of literature uh, about his life and ministry. I think it fills a void there for sure. Uh, but I think beyond that, it also, it also, offers a constructive account as opposed to a deconstructive account of what an Orthodox Christian reformed approach to mercy ministry might look like positively. And it gives us a model to at least, at least work with as we try to think how, even if not in a one-to-one way, how we might appropriate these insights and implement them concretely in our own 21st century uh, context. And I think in that, in that regard, we've, we've been missing a book that in one respect avoids the Catholic side of faith perfected by works. And then also on the other side, the kind of progressive social gospel reconstructionist approach as well. And I think, I think he's right to lock in on Spurgeon as really a great, model uh, that we could emulate today. And so I would warmly recommend this book uh, to our listeners, just, just in that connection of filling a void. Yeah, we would, we would recommend it. Uh, We commend the book to you. And if you're interested, we have a few copies, our friends at RHB Reformation Heritage Books have given us a few copies to give away. So if you go to placefortruth.org or theologyonthego.org, you can enter your information for an opportunity to win one of those books that we've been given. And if you'd like to donate to the work of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals or specifically the work of Theology on the Go, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. Very easy, accessible donate buttons there. We would also ask you just to take a minute and rate and review this podcast wherever it is that you download it. That really helps us spread the word. And if you know someone who'd be helped, just pass it along to them directly. Uh, we're, we're always glad to hear from you and to hear from other listeners about ideas or questions. And so please do send those along. And from James and myself and the whole Alliance team, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>